Romans chapter 9, we'll begin in verse number 1. I do hope you'll be back with us for the evening service tonight. Brother Egberg will be with us. Romans chapter 9, the Bible passage that we've been now for some times through chapter 8, just entering chapter 9. In verse 1, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, Paul writes, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers and of whom as concerning the flesh Christ came who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. Listen to me carefully. If you carried a Bible into this service, would you lift it up? If you carried a Bible into this service, would you lift it up? If you hold it there for just one moment, I want you to listen to a statement, and then I want you to repeat it to me. Here's the statement. It is an awesome responsibility to own a Bible. Would you repeat it with me? It is an awesome responsibility to own a Bible. You may put them down. That's about uh, something of which, it, for whatever reason, the Lord really stirred my spirit about this week. What an awesome responsibility we have in owning the Scriptures. When you look at the maps of the world and realize all the people who have no copy of the scriptures in their language and you think that here in this country we have Bibles stacked on one another in, in, in shelves and, and, uh, and desks, etc. Uh, my goodness, it ought to convict our hearts that we have this precious commodity of our faith and that we can hold it and read it and study it and memorize it and, and have all the access to it we do. But let me tell you something, it does not come without responsibility. You know, you don't just have this by accident. It didn't just come here by some fluke. This is the handiwork of God in getting it into our hands. And you can believe that things that come that way, you and I both will answer for them. The title of the message today I had is Priceless Privileges, but I thought often about it, it ought to be Priceless Responsibilities. Priceless Responsibilities. And I'll remind you of a verse, and I recommend you write it down somewhere, if nowhere else, at least on your heart. It is Luke chapter 12 and verse number 48. It reads, But he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. For unto whomsoever much is given of him shall be much required. And to whom men have committed much of him they will ask the more. You ought not forget that verse. Luke chapter 12 and verse number 48. With that in mind, I think it ought to be that you would uh, think in terms that maybe there is a, a correlation, this Memorial Day reflection, on the fact that there's a correlation between the number of soldiers who have died in defense of America's freedom and the much that we have received. You see, if, if much is required of those of whom much is given... And you think about all the folks who died for our cause here. Can you relate to how valuable it must be? Something must be here to which we are willing to sacrifice such lives. 
the fact of the matter is that's what the verse says. But Paul wrote it a little differently when he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Listen to this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, in verse number 2, Paul wrote, Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. First off, to appreciate the text, you have to understand that a steward was someone who was a manager, someone who manages what God had entrusted on that person's account. So what you have in the context is, God is saying, Moreover, it is required in managers of that which I have given them, that they be faithful. And literally the ideal means loyal to and committed to, to carry out whatever it was he gave to you. Whatever he gave to you, his responsibility is that he passed on to you is that you carry out the mandate that was behind that. And he's saying, I will hold you accountable for that. By the way, in your hymn book, and we sing this quite often around here, it's a good song, it's an exciting song to sing, but sometimes I think we may misinterpret it. It is a song that's found on page 450 in your songbook, and it's simply entitled, Count Your Blessings. Now, we all love the song. It says, When upon life's billows you are tempest-tossed, when you are discouraged, thinking all is lost, count your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. Are you ever burdened with a load of care? Does the cross seem heavy your call to bear? Count your many blessings, every doubt will fly. And you will be singing as the day goes by. Verse 3, when you look at others with their lands and gold, think that Christ has promised you his wealth untold. Count your many blessings. Money cannot buy your reward in heaven, nor your home on high. In the last verse, so amid the conflict, whether great or small, do not be discouraged. God is over all. Count your many blessings. Angels will attend. Help and comfort give you to your journey's end. The thing about that is, that's not just written to encourage you. When you start to count your blessings, let me tell you what it also will do. It'll remind you of your responsibilities. You see, they're not given out to just say, here's some blessings, enjoy them, have fun with them, and then throw them away when you get done with them. We're in a throwaway society. I mean, everything is in a recycled state or a trash state. You know, you just use it and toss it up to and including cameras now. You know, to take so many pictures, take out the film, and then toss the camera. Um, years ago, they had to little cars running around here and they used to call them throwaway cars you know you drive them for whatever 20,000 miles and you, you dumped them because they were made in such flimsy way that's about as far as they last throwaways but the fact of the matter is that's not the way the blessings of the Lord are so every blessing you've received and you start counting them you ought to mark out beside of it what my responsibility about it is what is it that God's going to hold me accountable for I remind you of this you see you my friend are a freeborn American and in this the land of the free what a blessing that is but what a responsibility it is. We being freeborn Americans, what a responsibility we have in doing whatever we can to help people who are not in freeborn countries. But there's also the saying, if you, my friend, have, a, have trusted Jesus Christ as your own personal Savior, what a blessing to know that your sins are forgiven, you have a home in heaven, but oh, what a responsibility it is. What a responsibility you have. And you may have a copy of God's Word, inspired, infallible Word that you hold in your lap. What a blessing that is. But what a responsibility it is. And you see, I think sometimes we don't balance them properly. Here, when we come to Romans chapter 8, and the opening thoughts of Romans 9 is, it reveals some of the benefits, the advantages, the privileges that Paul the Apostle's kinsman, the Jews, had. And Paul draws attention to those. You see, knowing what they had made Paul, knowing what they did not have, made him very sad. And that's how you begin chapter 9 when Paul is almost in a grieving state because he knew what they had access to but he also knew what they didn't have and that was Jesus Christ being, and his assumption on the part of all of us who read what he has written looks at it and say, man, they should have known Christ. 
I mean, everything in here was, was related to that end. Why didn't they know him? Now, that's the privileges of salvation in Jesus Christ. The point is, not everybody in the world is saved. Uh, step two, not everybody in the world is going to get saved. You saved? Boy, do you have a responsibility. What a blessing, for sure. Nobody doubts that for a half a heartbeat. But with that privilege, with that blessing, comes a responsibility that the folks out there who are pagans don't have. We have it. We know Christ. And we ought to make sure that people around us are at least told of Christ and let them make their own decision concerning faith in Him. But the fact is, it comes with responsibility. Something else to be noted and reminder of last week, when you come to verse number 1, in verse 1, Paul points out those three C's. He calls the three C's to regarding the convincing, I call it, the Jews that, in fact, what he's going to talk about, what he's telling them, he's telling them the truth because he's first off going to tell them how much he cares for them. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. I call Christ, he calls his conscience, and he calls the Holy Spirit who is the Comforter. And the Comforter was called the Spirit of Truth. And so consequently, he calls all of these as witnesses to the fact that what he's going to say is the absolute truth. And what he says in verse number 2 is that I have a great heaviness and a continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He knows they're not saved. And Paul the Apostle loves them and cares for them. And, and they, I'm sure, don't believe that at first because they looked, looked upon him as a traitor. He was someone who seemed to, to preach against some of the things that they stood for and the law, and the temple, etc. And so consequently, they didn't believe him, and he's convincing them. and He's giving them this as evidence that he's telling them the truth. And by the way, I mentioned it last week, and I think it's, a, it's something you ought to keep in your mind, where Paul in Philippians chapter 3 said that he was uh, willing to go to heaven. He would, in fact, rather go to be with the Lord. But he would not do that because that was not good for them, the believers at Philippi. So here you have a man who, who says he, he didn't go to heaven because the saints needed him. And here in Romans chapter 9 and verse number 3, he's willing to go to hell to keep people out of hell. So here he is, he's willing not to go to heaven because there's some saved people who need him to stay on earth. And here in Romans 9, he's willing to go to hell because he wants to keep people out. This guy had a commitment, boy, to people. And may I tell you that that kind of attitude is amazing. It reminded me of an article that I clipped years ago and I ran across it again this week. It said, a man once said to his friend, I hear you fired your pastor. Why were you unhappy with that guy? Well, said the other man, he kept telling us we were going to hell. What does your new pastor say? Oh, our new pastor says we're going to hell too. But we like him. Really? If your new pastor tells you what the old pastor told you, and that is that you're going to hell just like the other one did, why do you like him? Because the man said... When our old pastor said that we were going to hell, it sounded like he was glad. When our new pastor says it, it breaks his heart. And that's exactly what Paul is in this context of chapter 9. It sounds like it's broken his heart. He hates for the fact that these Jews do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me tell you something else. It not only sounds like Paul, but it ought to sound like us. You know, I have heard people talk about people going to hell and almost like they were gleeful about it. You could pick out the worst pagan on the face of the earth, and I don't care how much you know you dislike that person. He could be a, poli a politician that you are, is a foe to you. You could despise him. You could hate his politics, his economic philosophies, his morals, everything about him. But it ought not be that you'd be glad he was going to hell. I don't know anybody who wishes and hopes that Saddam Hussein goes to hell. I don't know anybody. Now, is there somebody out there? Oh, believe me, there are people who wish he would. After running people through... Uh, 
you know, shippers. I mean, I mean, goodness gracious. Uh, there are people out there who would. But let me tell you what. Paul the Apostle would look at him and say, look, I, I wish I could, I could see this man saved. You know, I, I wish he would come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I say to you, there ought not be anybody out there that you wouldn't do what you could do to reach them with the gospel of Jesus Christ, no matter how much you hate them. And maybe the more you dislike them ought to be the impetus and encouragement for you to go tell them, look, I don't particularly care for you as a person, but Jesus Christ loved you and died for you. And because he did, I'm here to tell you that you can be saved. And you can be saved right now. My point is, it ought not come to your preferences to pick and choose who you want to see in heaven. It ought to be a matter that we go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature, and pray they take come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now look at verse number 4 today. Who are Israelites? And here he begins, Paul begins to point out a whole list. You can either count them as 8 or 9, depending on whether or not you refer to the verse phrase, who are Israelites, whether there's 9 privileges or there are 8 privileges. But what he's going to do, he's going to talk about the, great, the, uh, the greatest advantages of any people on the face of the earth who ever received and failed to profit from them. That's what he's going to talk about in these verses. So I call your attention to the list. Don't get lost in it and keep up with me. Verse number four, who are Israelites? In the first look, I wasn't so sure that's a privilege, but as I got to thinking about it, I believe it is. I think what he's doing is this is a privilege in the sense that it, it identifies Paul's kinsmen, the Jews, in the sense of descendants from Abraham, who were the descendants of Isaac, who were then coming through Jacob. And I think what he's saying, remember Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, the fact of the matter is Israel as a word in the Hebrew carried with it the ideal of prince with God. And consequently, the Israelites, as, as the name is, should be reminding of us and telling us that these people have an advantage over all other nations in that they were given a princely place. They were recognized before God Almighty as a different kind of people. And he works and everything else he's going to do, he's going to build upon that very privilege. And it's going to be conspicuous as we go. Look at verse number four. Secondly, in verse number four, to whom pertaineth the adoption? Understand, this is not the adoption of saving faith that we came out of chapter 8 talking about. This is talking about setting apart a whole people. And that's obvious when you go to the Old Testament. One of the passages in the Old Testament is that one in Exodus chapter 4. In Exodus chapter 4, verse number 21, the Bible says, And the Lord said unto Moses, When thou goest to return into Egypt, see that thou do all these wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in thine heart, but I will harden his heart, that he shall not let the people go. And thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. And I say unto thee, Let my son go, that he may serve me. And if thou refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay thy son, even thy firstborn. We forget the fact that the killing of the firstborn was related to the fact that God had chosen these people and set them apart as his son. And said, this is my son. And if you don't treat him right, I'm going to deal with your son. And so the firstborn death in Egypt was really in direct correlation to the fact that they weren't treating God's son right, which in this case was Israel. It was adopted them as a nation of people. God had a great plan for Israel in that he, it was through them that he was going to bring salvation to the whole world, at least its message. And at least the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah of Israel. I do remind you, salvation has been and always will be an individual basis, but it was through the Jewish people that salvation was going to be presented. I mean, after all, the scriptures, and so many of them were written by the Jewish writers, so many of the early prophets, and all the scriptures that we have that relate to the Messiah, the, the Savior of the world. The fact of the matter is, salvation was of the Jew, and the Lord Jesus Christ said that. 
And consequently, that's what's set apart here. This was a nation of people God had adopted in a special sense relationship, and He was going to do great things for the world through them. It's been rightly observed that the Old Testament does not present God as father of the individual Jew or the individual Israelite, at least not the way He does in the New Testament. But God is presented as the father of Israel in the Old Testament. And that's an important distinction. What's interesting here is it was on this very issue that the Jewish leaders of Jesus Christ's day were stirred with such anger against the Lord Jesus Christ when he alluded to God as a personal father, my father. And boy, did that ever steam them up. And by the way, eventually led to his crucifixion because they didn't accept that. They said, God's not your father. He's the father of Israel. He's not your father. And so the consequence was they knew of the adoption of the nation. But they rejected it on an individual basis and crucified the Lord Jesus Christ when he even suggested such a thing. Now, look at verse number 4, chapter 9. He says in verse number 4, and the glory. Not only Israelites, not only adoption, but the glory. I don't think there's any doubt about what Paul is referring here to, that body of light or fire, which was often in the form of a cloud. And we call it and refer to it as the visible symbol of the presence of God, the Shekinah glory. The Shekinah glory. You read about it in the Old Testament several times, and it was no small thing. It's no small thing because it never appeared to any other country. You'll never read about the Shekinah glory with the Palestinians. You'll never read about the Shekinah glory with the Egyptians. You'll never read about the Shekinah glory with the Babylonians. You'll only read about the Shekinah glory with Israel. And the fact of the matter is, what he's saying and what he's demonstrating here is this glory was representative of the presence of God Almighty with the peoples of Israel. That's the point. And Paul is pointing out this is a great privilege. God didn't send this glory to go along with any of the other peoples of the world, but he sent it along with you folks. His glory up there in that cloud that went along when they left out of Egypt there in the chapter 16 of Exodus. The Bible talks about that cloud that was there. And then it talks about it again when he comes to Mount Sinai, when the law was given in Exodus chapter 24. That thing was right there. And then he talks about it again when our Lord himself speaks about it. I say our Lord, our Father, Heavenly Father, he speaks about it in Leviticus 16. And he talks about that glory will be over the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. So everywhere Israel would turn, it seemed as if God was right there. I mean, they looked in the sky, there's that cloud. They looked behind them, there's that cloud. They looked in their Holy of Holy place over that mercy seat where the blood was spilt. And there's that cloud everywhere they turned. God was saying, I'm here. I'm here. I'm not far away. I'm keeping a watch over you. You're my adopted son, and I'm going to make sure everything goes well for you. I'm right here. He never was out of eyesight. He was right there looking and watching and observing. By the way, when you understand that, then you understand the consequences of the event when, in fact, the Bible says in 1 Samuel chapter number 4, in verse number 21, and she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory is departed from Israel because the ark of God was taken and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory is departed from Israel for the ark of God is taken. That's why that was such a sad occasion because it represented and symbolized the very presence of God. God's presence in symbolic fashion had been lifted from Israel and the people were keenly aware of the consequences of that. It was a sad moment. Back over to Romans chapter 9, verse number 4, he continues, not only as Israelites and not only a, an advantage in that they were under the adoption and only that they had the glory, but they also had the covenants. Truthfully, I think it could be stated and pointed out that nothing is more revealing of Israel's special relationship with God than are the covenants, the agreements that God made with Israel. 
In fact, if you go to the Old Testament, you'll see probably over 200 times references are made in the Old Testament concerning the covenants. And they were made with Israel, and as these covenants were made, God was showing again His close connection to them. And Paul is pointing it out here. This was one of the evidences of God's close proximity and His close dealings with Israel. He made covenants with you people. And, and God was on one end of this thing. And by the way, do notice that it's in the plural form, so it must have been more than one. We talk about the Abrahamic, the Davidic, the Palestinian covenants, all these covenants wrapped into one. But what you should understand, too, that this was more a divine commitment on God's part than it was some kind of equally committed contract. You know, God was saying in so many cases, here's what I'm going to do, and it didn't leave a whole lot for those people. There were conditional covenants, no doubt about that, but many of them were on God's side. Here's what I'm going to do for you. And God did do what he said. He was committed to that, and he followed through very carefully. Then in verse 4, he says, and maybe what the biggest one of all, is in verse number 4, speaking about the giving of the law. What a big advantage this was for Israel. I mean, in the giving of the law, the Jews loved the law. When I was a, a much younger, more ignorant pastor in, um, in Ohio, we had a Honor the Word Sunday, and, and uh, I remember wanting to get a copy of the Torah. And so I remember picking up the phone and calling a, a local rabbi. And, uh, and I said, sir, he said, I'm a pastor of the Independent Baptist Church over here in this little city, and we're going to have a Sunday when we're going to honor the Word of God, and we'd like to have a copy of the Torah. Would you mind loaning us your Torah? And the phone went dead for just a minute. I said, yes, you there? And the guy was still trying to catch his breath. <laughs> I mean, this guy just about died on the phone for me to ask him for the copy of the Torah. I mean, and when I then eventually went over there, and looked, I understood. Man, they kept this thing into this big vault. And, you know, it was glass fronted. But they had this vault with these locks. And there were locks on every corner. I mean, this thing was held like gold. And in the inside was this beautiful, oh my, this thing was beautiful. Had gold ends to the scrolls. And it was wrapped in a purple, uh, uh, silky looking satin thing with fringe around it. With some uh, diamond looking gems in the middle. I mean, this thing was treated with unbelievable honor. And, uh, and uh, I, I just I said to him, you know, and by the way, I went over to see him for to make sure he wasn't dead. I thought the guy died on the phone. But when I got over there, and he welcomed me to come and see. But looking at it, I'll assure you, I didn't get any closer than hear that piano because he wouldn't let me get any closer than that. I mean, these folks highly treasured the law. And the consequence of that was I learned a valuable lesson that day that I think they treasure it probably more than we treasure God's Word. Because not that they honor and worship that and so that that's not the point I get at. What they did was they treated it with respect. In our country, very frankly, you, you don't really see a lot of respect for the scriptures. I, I, by the way, I appreciate when we have guys come in here, evangelists, preachers come in here and say, out of respect for God's word, would you stand as we read? I, I think that's a healthy thing. I really do. I, I think it just puts us back in a mode that we're going to read something that's not the magazine or the newspaper or whatever. We're going to stand while we read this. Because in truth, we do so very few things in our Bible-believing churches that have anything to do with reflection of honor and pomp concerning the Scriptures. And I don't think it's a bad thing. I, I think it's good that when the Scriptures are read that everybody comes to a dead stop. You remember those commercials you used to see on some of the evening news? They'd run a commercial after Dan Rather would get off and, and they'd have this thing concerning uh, uh, Smith Barney. And he'd say, when Smith Barney speaks, you know, and everybody'd stand still. You ever seen those commercials? He would say, when he speaks, everything stops, like the world would stand still. Let me tell you, if they do that for Smith Barney, then they ought to do it when the Scriptures are read. 
And we ought to teach our children. When the Scriptures are being read, if you walk into the auditorium and somebody's reading the Scriptures, I don't care if you're in, a, in midair, you ought to stop right there until we get done with that. Because that's the way we ought to re reflect honor. And I'm telling you, these Jewish folks respected that Torah because you couldn't get more than six foot from it because I was a Gentile. And no Gentile is going to get closer than eight, ten foot from that thing. Respect and honor of it. The, the Jewish people loved the Scriptures and reflected that concerning that. But I tell you, we forget so easily. Do you know why Stephen was stoned to death in the New Testament? Because he didn't treat the, the, the law the way the Jews thought he ought to. You go back and read it for yourself. Acts chapter 6. The whole story there and how that they say, this guy is not respecting of the law. So what they do? Stone the guy to death. I mean, he's not treating the Scriptures the way we think they ought to be treated, so let's kill him. Paul the Apostle complimented the Jews back over in Romans chapter number 3 when he talked to them about the idea that they had been given the oracles of God. When we went through that, we talked about that being the, literally the idea of the very words of God. They were given the very words of God. And that's the way they wanted you looking. God gave us His word and God respected us and gave us something that we can give direction to our lives through. And so we're honored to have it. And they treated it with honor. Something else to be honor, interesting to me and this one is in the book of Deuteronomy. Look, if you would, at Deut Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, Israel was seen as, a, as special on the basis of having received the Scripture, that is, the, the law. In chapter 4, you'll note the passage begins in verse 5. There's other points of the passage. But in Deuteronomy 4, in verse number 5, he says, Behold, I have taught you statutes and judgments, even as the Lord my God commanded me, that ye should do so in the land whither ye go to possess it. Verse number 6, Keep therefore and do them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations. You need to get a grip on that. What's going to make the Jews distinct in the surrounding nations is their compliance with the law of God. That's what the verse says. If you're going to make a difference in your society... You're going to have to take this law that I'm giving you and live it out in such a way that the people around you see that you're living by a different code. You're not living by the code of Hollywood. You're not living by the code of fun and pleasure and recreation. You're living by a code that God gave that gives direction to life. And if you're going to make an impact, that's how you're going to do it. So verse number five, this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations, which shall hear all these statutes and say, surely this is, or this great nation is a wise and understanding people. They see them making good decisions based on the law of God. They live differently. They don't let Hollywood make their decisions for them. And they're saying to these people, these guys are smart. Their kids are not going out and getting in all kind of trouble. Uh, their families are not breaking up at an equal rate to those who know the Lord. I mean, what's going on with this group of people? Well, what's going on with them? They had God's law, and they were complying with it. And they're saying that that's the way the world looks at you and says, hey, those people have something, got go something going. I mean, their kids are not rebels. Their, their, their families are not falling apart. Uh, there's just something different here. they got some wisdom. And God said, they're going to know what it is. Moses says, they're going to know because we got the law. Verse number 7. For what nation is there so great who hath God so nigh unto them as the Lord our God is in all things that we call upon him for? And what nation is there so great that hath statutes and judgments so righteous as all this law which I set before you this day? They're saying, boy, I'll tell you what, we're, we're a special people because we have God's law. 
and it can make a difference both in our lives and in the lives of the people who watch us. And by the way, no other people had ever been so honored to get a law from God as in this case. What a privilege these people had, but oh, what a responsibility they're going to be held accountable for. Going on, Romans chapter 9, verse number 4. It's not only that, but he also says the giving of the law, and then he says, and the service of God. The service of God. I don't think there's any doubt, but what this refers to Israel's worship of God, because the other text in the Old Testament refers to the service of God, and it talks about the temple worship. It talks about the laws that pertain to the offerings. It reflects all the laws concerning the priesthood. It reflected all the laws concerning the sacrificial system. What's exciting about this to me is that while other nations were dancing around carved Im images and stone statutes and devils and, and cutting themselves to appease their non-existent God, Israel was in an orderly fashion worshiping and honoring the Lord and doing it in dignity and, and giving the kind of glory that God wants and accepts as creator God of heaven. And so boy, it wasn't hard to see between the two ways of worship that one of these was very orderly, very well-directed, and very well-orchestrated, and the other one was chaos. Absolute chaos. And the author of that, obviously, was the devil himself. But Israel had a very orderly directive concerning how you're to worship me. And no other people on the face of the earth has ever received directives on how to worship God. You'll have to come to the New Testament, as Brother Mike spoke about on Sunday evening, and pick up the fat passages of Scripture that relate how worship was carried out in the New Testament for you to get even a glimpse of how it was done. But here's a group of people who God gave directly on how He wanted all the worship carried out. The sacrifices, the offerings, the priesthood, who is qualified, who is not, how they do it, and when they don't do it. God gave that, and He only gave it to one group of people, the Jews. One group. Looked out over all the nations of the world. And he said, we'll give it to the Jews. And they got it. And they lived up to it to a point. That's lots more could be said. But let me move on. Chapter 9, verse number 4. It concludes verse number 4. And it adds, and the promises. I don't think there's any doubt. But what the references here are to the promises of the Messiah. And all the promises that effectively led up to that. Acts chapter 2 passage of scripture Peter speaking in Acts chapter 2 verse 39 and he said in the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off even as as many as the Lord our God shall call then in Acts chapter 13 in verse 32 he says and we declare unto you the glad tidings how that the promise which was made unto the fathers God hath fulfilled the same unto their children and in that he raised up Jesus again as it also written in the second psalm thou art my son this day have I begotten thee I don't think there's any doubt what he's talking about is the promise of Messiah and the promises that would lead up to that Messiah showing up on this earth. Then he goes to the fifth verse. Notice in Romans chapter 9 and verse number 5. It says in verse number 5, Whose are the fathers? It was the fathers spoken of here that were Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And uh, these are the men that really laid the foundation for what we know of Judaism as we read about it in the New Testament. These are the men that were looked to and, re, 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 I guess you'd say, uh, revered by people of the Old Testament. Man, when you speak about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the very mention of their names brought people's honor to attention. You know, what, what are you going to say about those guys? Because those were the men that God dealt with more personally and revealed himself more specifically in directives of their lives. And Moses and David came along and did the same with them. But these men especially, and they're referred to as the fathers, 
And he is saying in this case, you tell me any other country in the world that has men like this with this stature of respect and honor. Show me. Tell me about them. Where are they? And even to this day, when you go into uh, um, any kind of congregation, basically, and you refer to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, everybody in the room will know exactly what group of people you're talking about. It's, a, it's an identification mark, and that's what he's using it in this text as. But then last, lastly, look at verse number 5. He says, And of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God bless forever, Amen. While all the Jews would have agreed with all the other eight things in everything Paul had stated in verse 4 and all up to verse 5 until here, they would have balked at this one. I mean, if they were Jews out there and they were listening to Paul, everything would have been hunky-dory up until he came to this point. And he said, and then Christ came through Israel. They're going to say, what Christ? Point made is this. The word Christ would not triggered any kind of reaction. Why? Because in, in, in the Bible it simply means the anointed one. But anybody who knew who the anointed one was, that's the Messiah. So what he's really saying, and they knew Paul, even, even Paul in this case using this word, they knew Paul was saying he's talking about Jesus of Nazareth. And we don't agree with that. See, you guys must understand that the Jews do not accept Jesus Christ. They don't accept any of the New Testament. I have a book before me, and I mentioned it downstairs this morning. And, uh, and this book is a, is a good book. It's probably the best book I've read in the last year or two. In regard to uh, external reading, uh, that's not, quote, of theological nature. This book is written by a rabbi. His name is Rabbi Daniel Lapin. On Wednesday night, a couple times, I read a passage out of this thing. The thing that amazes me about this and the thing that God used this book to do for me was to point out the fact that, that even pagans, and, and, and I even hate to use a word about this guy being a pagan, because if I gave you this book, and by the way, I gave it to a, a preacher and said, read the book and see what you think. And he came back and said, I agree 100% with the book. Here's a pagan, a man who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, and yet this man will say things in here that you won't even get fundamental Baptists to say. This guy's got this thing down pat. He knows exactly where the good things in America come from, and he knows they come from the good hand of God. This guy exalts God. I mean, he honors the Lord in his family. His family, he trains his children in their home in the Hebrew language. And, and he takes his children to Hebrew school. And, and he has been in a rabbi, as a rabbi in a temple and taken care to teach people the ways of God. I mean, this guy is just absolutely phenomenal. And what he's done and commitment he's made to God Almighty. But there's one problem. He left out the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says it right up front. First few pages, he says, Necessary for me to explain to you that I am not now, nor have I ever been a Christian. I profess no special expertise of the books known as the New Testament. Being infatuated with Judaism and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I dedicated my study to time and expanding my familiarity with Jewish theology. In the midst of a lifelong love affair with the seers of truth of the Torah, I reject any notion of theological compatibility between Judaism and the Christian faith. I do not believe a Jew can also be a Christian without betraying his Judaism. Christianity has been responsible, among many other things in the world, but one for sure is founding of America and the greatest civilization the world has ever known. And for making America great, this book will describe how a weakened Christianity in America threatens all Americans, including every Jew. He loves our country because he says Christianity made it so, but he loves this country because it's going to give protection to his Jewish ideas. 
He doesn't love it because Christ made it this way. He loves it for what he can get out of it. And, and I say to you, I respect the guy in the fact that he's honest and upfront. I'm not a Christian. I have no intention of becoming a Christian. But everything he says in the book, you'd have to agree with. He talks about America going to hell in a, in a slop bucket. He talks about all the garbage that gets put into our homes. He talks about all the lack of convictions in people's lives. He talks about all the things in this book that every preacher in a country ought to be hammering about, and yet he's not saved. How you figure? I'll tell you how you figure. is one, because he's had a lot of advantages in the context of having a lot of contact with God's Word, the law. I mean, boy, he has just bombarded with that, and he knows it backward, forward, inside, and out. And as a Jew, he knows full well what the advantages are. And he knows he'll have to give an account for the advantages that he has. And he says all that in the book. But everything Paul has referred to up to this point in this list in Romans chapter 9, it finds its culmination and its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world. And that's what you need to see in Romans 9. You see, all these advantages that he's talking about, every single one of these, he is talking about as they are pointing Israel... And pushing Israel, as it were, to the reality that just as God gave all these other things to you that you saw back there as advantages, then one day He gave you a son. A sinless, virgin-born son. And that son came through Israel, that's for sure. And you need to understand that, by the way. This is a great verse of Scripture to point out that the Holy Spirit guarded and protected the deity of Jesus Christ. Notice what the verse says. It says, as concerning flesh, he came through Israel. What's that leave open? Well, his deity came from the Father. That's what it leaves open. Sure, he was born a Jew. Physically, he was born a Jew. But he was God of very God. And that's what the Holy Spirit protects because in verse number 9, or verse number 5 of verse number 9, he says very simply, of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all. Who is over all? Jesus Christ. What does he say? And he says, God blessed forever. That's what he said. Jesus Christ became and came into this world, born of a virgin Mary, a Jew. But he was God of very God, blessed forever. That's what the verse says. And the Holy Spirit is faithful to protect that integrity in that verse of Scripture. And what Paul is saying is, of all the things the Jews have received... They acknowledge all of them except the one that's the most important. The one to which all the others pointed. All the others were not things that lived on their own. None of the covenants lived on their own. None of the agreements lived on their own. None of the law lived on its own. None of those things could, what they call, self-survive. They had one thing they had to look to. Out there somewhere, there's going to be a fulfillment of this. And the fulfillment of all of it was going to be found in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they rejected Him. That's like this is the pinnacle of the temple. This is the whole big deal. And you're not going to get up there? I mean, it's like somebody walking to one of these shrines and walking for five days and you're within 20 feet and you won't go the last 20 feet to touch the shrine. That's what it is. You mean all this other stuff? What is it without that? It's nothing. And that's what the Bible said. None of this will matter. None of it counts unless you come to Christ and accept Him and believe on Him. All the rest of this will be nothing to you. And yet you boast about all this. You brag that we have the law. And you boast that we have covenants with God. And you boast that you had the glory that floated around as you walked about from Egypt over to Sinai. You boast it. And then you come to the very thing of which all this points and you say, I'm not going any further. That's what disturbed Paul so badly. That's what so upset him so much. You're so close. This guy is so close. 
and yet he's so far. That's the saddest thing in the world. I said it downstairs and I repeat it again because it really breaks my heart. Peter Jennings has done so many programs on ABC News concerning Jesus Christ and religion and resurrection and the life after death, and he's come so close. And yet now he has cancer and he's probably going to die. And unless God intervenes in his life, he'll die without the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior. That's sad, you know. And do you know there's so many people in this country who come so close and close enough that they could touch, as it were, the hem of his garment and turn around and walk off and do not believe on him and trust in the Savior and Lord. Let me tell you, my friend, I'm a certainty that we have so many responsibilities because we've had so many privileges. We've had so many advantages. I tell you, there'd be no way in the world anybody in America could stand before God Almighty and say, you didn't give me a chance. You didn't give me a chance. You say, well, I don't care. If every Baptist fella and man and woman, boy and girl who trusted Christ as Savior failed at their responsibility to witness to anybody in America, there's a way to hear the gospel without anybody opening their mouth next door to you. I mean, radio and television. There, there's, I grant you, you have to pick and choose. But you could come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in America. I say this to you this morning that I think sometimes we fail to see the great blessings of all the privileges that have been brought our way and somehow, some way, it's easy to count blessings but fail to live up to responsibilities. And that's what these people were doing in this context. And by the way, somebody wrote this. I didn't. It was not so much that God's law had been shunned or ignored, but it was rather that all the expressions of God's love for Israel had been spurned. It's not the anger but the broken heart of God that lies behind the words in Paul's passage here in Romans 9. And that's absolutely true. It's not that God was so mad. I grant you, He may be angry for their spurning His word and so forth, but that's not the thing that pushes the passage. What pushes the passage is exactly what Paul started the passage with, a broken heart over these people and how much advantage they had. And they had not taken advantage of it. How sad it is to me that you have Jewish people in this country who try so hard to undermine the godly heritage that we've had for so long in our country. Jewish people. Jewish people. You heard me right. How sad it is that Jewish people would be responsible. Did you know that for many years, and maybe even now, and I fail to find out who the leadership is right now, but for many years, do you know who the key leadership of the ACLU has been? All key positions in the ACLU have been Jewish for many years. They have fought the Christian faith harder than any other group of people on the face of this earth. Every one of them were Jewish. They fought us tooth and nail to get things out of our, our homes and our churches and try to and stop privileges and rights that we had as Christian America. It was Jewish people who did that. And I say not only that, but it is also the fact that the programs, so many of the programs are produced by Jewish people. One of those which put out the worst or the worst kind of slants upon Christians was a program called Seinfeld or something of that nature. Not only was it done by Jewish actors, it was produced by producers who were Jewish and in context wrote scripts about and references to of absolutely embarrassing God-fearing people in America. They had it as their plan. That was written into program notes on the script. Do whatever you can to embarrass Christians in America. Do whatever you can to make them look silly and stupid. I never saw in the program, so I can't attest that they ever accomplished their purpose or not. But the point made, I know my heart that they're really answering for those. The guy who did, Lauren Michaels, who did the program production for Saturday Night Live, and I believe has still input to it or did. The fact is, on their program notes, said beside that, it is a matter that we'll show the Jews they have no business running shoulder to shoulder with any Bible Christian in America. 
What were they doing? They were going to try to embarrass Jewish people because some Jewish people were sympathetic to Bible Christians. Jewish people said that. Jewish people were doing all that. And did it, would it, could it surprise you to know that the most liberal block of voters in the United States of America are all Jewish? The most liberal. I mean the ones who vote for homosexuality, the ones who vote for abortion, the ones who vote for every single thing in worldview that is contrary to what the Scriptures teach. You know who it is who is the biggest block of voters? Jewish people. How can this be? People with all the advantages and all the opportunities to get to see God up close and personal, and these people do that? By the way, you know who the most vicious, ungodly voice on all radio is? Anybody know... What's the, what's, the, what's the guy who's the most vicious, ungodly, uncouth, vulgar? That's the guy. You know he's Jewish? The wicked of the wicked. And he's been tagged over and again. The most vile voice in America. He's Jewish. Roseanne Barr. The most vile, wicked, female voice in the world. Jewish. How can this be? Let me tell you how it is. Because there's a devil who relishes every moment of letting people who have good advantages that ought to make a difference, blinding their minds to the truth. Isn't it sad, though, if they all knew just what this guy did and somehow somebody could get to them and share the gospel of Jesus Christ and somehow the Holy Spirit would speak to their hearts and show them Christ really is the true Messiah of Israel. America could be cleaned up in a month and a half. Because they're the ones who put the most slop into all the media experiences. Do I hate them? Absolutely not. I just find myself feeling the exactly same way Paul does. My heart's broken for them. They could help us so much. By the way, let me not leave it with that kind of negative thing, but let me thank God for men like Jay Sekulow of the American Justice System, who is a converted Jew. Let me uh, thank God for men like Lou Sheldon, who is the traditional coalition fellow. Let me thank God for Jack Reese, who we support as missionary, world outreach ministry. And let me thank God for men like Mike Fisher, who often attends our own church, who is a Jewish man that somebody shared the gospel with and he believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior. You see, there are some people out there who are Jewish who have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And did you notice it seemed like all of them are making some contribution to make America better? That's exactly what it will do. Wherever a Jew comes to know Christ as Savior, it seems they work harder than anybody else around them to make sure that good is produced because they know how far off they were in the first place. Let me tell you something this morning. I was reading a booklet, and I picked it up somewhere. God only knows. And if you put your names in your book and I have it, I'll get it back to you. But I don't know where I got this book. But in this book, there's this thing. So I copied three or four pages out of it. Only because I wanted to keep them and think on it for a few days because it's a, it is about a Jewish man. Man's, uh, man's name, if I can find it here. I know his last name is Levi, but I want to find his first name, Primo. His name is Primo. He's an Italian Jew. He was prisoner number 174517. He was in Auschwitz extermination camp. And what happened while he was there, Primo... Uh, really was a kind of prisoner who just more or less went along with the program and tried to get along with everybody there just so he could survive, as I'm sure many did. 
And the story is, and this is not all of it here, but what I have of it here and what I've read before is the fact that he, uh, he was really treated no differently than the other folks who were, you know, troublemakers. You know, it's, it's like the kind of deal where you try to be kind and gracious and you get treated the same way as everybody else who's not so kind and gracious. That's the kind of thing. He was, he was trying very hard to go along with the program and be what they want him to be and do what they want, but they treated him just as meanly and unkindly and the beatings and all this kind of stuff. Well, the point made about it is he turned out to be that he was among four other men who were survivors from the, from the area of, of Italy he came from and actually went through Poland. It's where they went through. But he was, he was the only one of four from this Italian group that survived the Auschwitz concentration camp. And the thing was different about him. He made up his mind. And when he got out, he was going to go around and tell the world. In fact, he called it witnessing. He said, I'm going to witness to the world about what they did there because I don't want anybody to ever forget it lest somehow they repeat it. And so he made it his life's mission to go around and, and just talk to every group he could. He called up groups and asked them if he could come and speak to them about his experience. And, oh, yeah, they wanted him to hear about it, and they brought him in. And, and uh, they kept coming, and they kept listening, and they didn't seem to pay any attention. And he made up his mind that he was just going to broaden his base. He was going to go further and talk to more people and get more publicity and get on uh, TV programs. He was going to go everywhere telling people about this atrocity. And he was sure he'd make some kind of great difference. And what he found out was it seemed to make no difference whatsoever. People didn't had kids growing up who didn't even know what Auschwitz was. He had people in his neighborhood who had no collection. What, what, how, how bad was it? How, how come you talk about it so negatively? You sure it wasn't just imprisoned, you know... And he couldn't believe it. And consequently, one day, he went out in his apartment building and he jumped down a whole eight floors of steps. Just dived over the banister down to the corridor of steps that led down to the floor. And it killed him. And people were saying, what happened to Primo? And everybody was asking, why did he do that? He had such passion to get the word out about what happened at Auschwitz. And they said, uh, nobody was listening to it. It was making no difference in anybody's life. And they began to speak and talk to his family. And somebody in Primo's life, in close to him and family, said, but the problem was that Primo was an atheist. He did not believe there was a God. And when he saw the hopelessness of how Auschwitz was, saw the hopelessness of coming back and telling people about a hopeless situation without any hope, it didn't make any difference. And his point was, if you're going to make a difference, you've got to give somebody hope. And I have none to offer because I'm, a, I'm an atheist. And his family member says, if he could have only come to know there's a God in heaven who loved him and let him go through it with purpose to have a plan bigger than he could have ever dreamed he could have probably had an impact on the world. And by the way, there have been such people who lived through that, who came back and told such stories. You've heard the story, though I don't agree with her theology, was Corey Tim Boone. Oh, how she came to grow in the Lord in so many areas of which I'm, I'm, I'm moved. I mean, things that God did that was obvious. At one time, I believe, the story about the, the, the starving for water in the cold of winter, and they wouldn't bring water. And all of a sudden, looking outside and seeing that there was an icicle forming on the outside of the one building. And they got to the icicle and got it in. And enough people in there dripped and took drips off of that thing, of that ice cube, of that icicle to survive that day. 
and there was no icicles on any other building. And there was no snow that had fallen. There was no rain in the dead of winter. How did it come over that window at that time? Well, to ask her, God sent it. God sent it. And boy, did she ever get to tell those stories. And when she told them, she told them as only she could. And the fact of the matter is, the difference is, she understood that God had something in it. And God got something good out of it. And he brought faith in lives of many people. And her family was one of them. This morning I say to you, I don't know all the privileges that you've been blessed with. But I do know this. You have a great responsibility for every one of them. And it ought to be that you'd make up your mind that you'd help other people by the way that somebody helped you. And the best way they've helped you is to introduce you to the Lord Jesus Christ. Of all the things that New Life Baptist Church can do to help people, we need to introduce people to the Lord Jesus Christ. They at least ought to know about Him and then they can make their decision whether they trust Him or not. I'm not for forcing anybody with anything. But I am telling you that there are folks out there who need Christ. And there are folks in here who have received him and believed on him. And he has blessed them abundantly. We owe it to the world to go tell them. Paul said, I'm a debtor to the Greeks and the Hebrews. I'm a, I'm a debtor to people around. And I must, as it were, go tell them about Jesus Christ. And he had a heart to do it. I hope you do. Are you here today without Christ? Have you been born in America, a free-born American? In a country where you have access to church and Bibles and church ministry, teaching, preaching ministry, and you've grown up in this and you've maybe gotten a little cynical and a little bit in an apathetic attitude about the whole thing and you personally have sort of drifted through it without ever coming to personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. A few days ago, a conversation I had with Ross Thompson, a member of our own fellowship. In that conversation, he assured me that if he died, when he died, he knew he was going to heaven. And I pressed him for more certainty. And he said, Rick, I am absolutely sure I'm trusting Jesus Christ and him alone. And to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And I know that. I said, I rest in that, Ross. That's good enough for me. If you're willing to take your eternity and rest it and relax it on what you believe that you've committed to Jesus Christ, then I am too. I'd say that to you. Are you willing to rest your eternity on whatever decision you've made concerning Christ. Because that's what you'll be doing the moment you die. You'll be saying that I'm not afraid to die because I am absolutely convinced that the decision I made in trusting, believing on Christ is sufficient to step out into eternity, the lacks of which I have never experienced before. But I trust my decision in Christ enough that I'm ready to die. That's what Ross said. And he's with the Lord today. The question would be, are you willing to trust your eternity to your decision? That's the question on the table. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and thank you for the opportunity that you've given us as a freeborn American to have it, to hold it, to read it, to study it, to memorize it. We're an honored group of people. And Father, we today come to you thanking you and praising you for that privilege, but also recognizing that we have an awesome responsibility. And when we leave here today, we enter into the field of the world by which we have to discharge, to carry out the responsibility of those privileges. And so I ask you right now to help us to know for certain, for sure, that if we died right where we stand and sit, we would go to heaven. Help us, Father, I pray this morning to be certain and sure of our relationship with 
your son, the Lord Jesus, then in turn right with you. And I pray that there'd be no doubts, there'd be no wonderment as we come closer to our lives coming to a conclusion in this world and entering into that place in heaven. I pray, Father, that you'd help every man, woman, boy, and girl in this room to have absolute, clear, biblical-based assurance. May it come from your word and not from our emotions. May it come from what you've said and what we have embraced rather than something that we have been passed down by our families. I pray today that faith would be our own, not second-hand faith. I pray today that you'll speak to every heart, a man, woman, boy, and girl in this building. And, Father, if there's any here who have any questions or doubts they need to get addressed, help them to do so today without fail. Help us not to leave here until we're certainly sure of our relationship with Christ and with you. I pray for believers today. Help them to realize the great privileges we have, the great privileges, benefits, and blessings we have as believers. And then help us to recognize them as responsibilities to be carried out. Bring forth fruit, we pray, in this hour for your glory in their lives as well as the lives of those who are here without Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me, please? If you need a hymn book, turn to 282, Just As I Am Without One Plea. If God has spoken to your heart this morning and you need direction, you have some questions answered that you maybe not gotten answered in the message, then we'd be delighted and happy to sit down with you, talk with you, or one of our assistant workers here, men with men, ladies with ladies, to assist you, to help you, to get any of those questions answered. But we would urge you not leave here without your absolute Bible assurance that when you die, as die you will, that you'd go to heaven. That's so important. That's not a secondary issue, and it's not something that can be taken care of just any time you want. It's an issue that's on the table for every man, woman, boy, and girl this hour, this day, at this time. So if God has spoken to your heart, may God give you the grace then to act upon it and do what you should. As we sing 282... Verse, verse, first word together, please. Just as I am without one plea. God has spoken to your heart. Would you come? If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? Thank you very much for your time and attention. And your attention has been expanded over the usual time. And I thank you for your patience. I saw no one getting ready to walk out, and I'm grateful for your patience. Thank you for giving me a few extra moments this morning. Hope you'll be back this evening. 5 o'clock choir practice, 5.30 men's prayer, and 6 o'clock. Pastor Eddie Egberg will be here to challenge us concerning Christian education and a message from God's Word. Hope you'll be here and join us then. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Ask the Lord's blessing. As we go, Brother Todd, would you close, please? <clears throat>